trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you to the show. Hey, whether you are a first-time wrong thinker or a seasoned veteran of wrong think, I'm so glad that you are a part of what we're doing today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors. I've got an entire section on my website listed just for the sponsors. They include Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as GovernYourIncome.com. I'll have more to say about them coming up in just a few moments. Let's jump right in. I've got some really fun and a little bit of not-so-fun information to share with you today, simply because I believe there are people out there who are looking for a good, solid, principled take on what's going on around us, one that leads them not to a place of despair and helplessness where, you know, it's everything sucks and there's nothing we can do, but uh, that you can better understand what's happening in the world around you, as well as understand what you can do at an individual level to make the world a better place, to make the right kinds of decisions that don't lead us further into the abyss. So here's one that's going to push a few buttons for a few people. We need risky playgrounds. Let's hear it for risky playgrounds. This is an article from Lenore Skenazy. Lenore Skenazy is the, she's the person who coined the phrase free-range children. She also happens to be one of my favorite parenting experts because of this. And while she has been called the worst mother in America for uh, teaching her son, who I think he was eight or nine years old at the time, how to ride the New York subway system alone, and they would uh, make a they would split up in New York City, she and her son, with uh, with directions. Okay, he knew how to to find the right trains, and you're going to meet me at Macy's at uh, you know at this time, and he did it, and people were incensed. How could a mother do this to her poor child? Oh, the terrible things. The horror that child must have felt. And they're failing to see the flip side of the coin is how empowered would a child be in knowing that they have the capacity, they're smart enough to to figure out how to get through the city. Now, again, she didn't just turn him loose, you know, on, on his own with no previous experience. They went through a few dry runs to see how the system worked. Then he was allowed to do it on his own. I can't think of a better way to build confidence in your child. So when I hear her calling for risky playgrounds, I'm like, all right. I want to hear what Lenore Skenazy has to say here. And interestingly enough, this is a story that's coming out of Germany. And I only, I, I'm only surprised my daughter lives in Germany. She's raising her little girl there with her husband. And, um, the Germans are quite fond of order. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a very strong sense that we follow the rules. But uh, apparently Germany's adding more risk to its playgrounds. Some of its climbing structures are now three stories high. Who's requesting this? Are you sitting down? It's the insurance companies. Skenazy says they want kids to grow up risk competent. Ironically, safety culture is stunting kids' risk assessing abilities. Gaver Tully, who uh, should know, he's the founder of SF Brightworks and Tinkering School in San Francisco, also the author of 50 Dangerous Things You Should Let Your Children Do. He says this is a fantastic program or this is fantastic progress, rather, in understanding childhood is the right time for children to learn to recognize and mitigate risk. 
Now, an influential German study in 2004 found that children who had improved their motor skills in playgrounds at an early age were less likely to suffer accidents as they got older. That's according to reporter Philip Alterman in The Guardian. He adds, with young people spending an increasing amount of time in their own home, the Umbrella Association of Statutory Insurance and Accident Insurers rather in Germany last year called for more playgrounds that teach children to develop what they call risk competence. Now, Lenore Skenazy says that's music to an actuary's ears and also to some parents. She says, my friend, Sioban, is a New York native who moved to Germany. A few years ago, when her daughter was in elementary school, she says the school replaced the standard playground equipment with four long, thick trees with their branches removed, all interconnected with wide ropes and wobbly bridges made of rubber. The whole thing was maybe six feet at the tallest point, but the trees had been polished, so they were slippery. Sure enough, says Soban, the very first week they were installed, a girl fell off and broke her arm. Now, as as an American, she says, I anticipated the outrage that would surely follow. My heart was in my throat as I eavesdropped on other parents at pickup the the, the following day. What did I hear? Children need to learn their limitations. That probably sounds best in a Clint Eastwood voice. Man's got to know his limitations. (laughs) No lawsuit? No tear this thing down? Skenazy's friend was thrilled. Lenore Skenazy says this more accepting approach to risk is starting to take hold beyond Germany. That's according to Tim Gill, author of Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities. He says even international safety standards organizations, often the fun police when it comes to playgrounds, are coming around to a more balanced, pro-risk view. So while the appetite for risk here in America is perhaps a little slower to develop, New York City built its first adventure playground, the yard, in 2016, complete with hammers, nails, plenty of wood, and saws. And it stands by its credo, no parents allowed. Lenore says, as a denizen of play conferences, I can attest that a lot of play scholars are eager for more exciting playgrounds. Unfortunately, that runs smack into our culture's habit of underestimating kids, overestimating danger, and hiring trial lawyers. In 2019, a family that sued the Howell Township, New Jersey School District, where their daughter fell off the slide and broke her arm, won a settlement of $170,000. And their lawyer had argued the slide's slope was too steep, as it was at a 35-degree angle rather than a 30. Now, perhaps out of fear of just that kind of thing, one school district in Richland, Washington, just plain got rid of its swings, arguing, well, swings have been determined to be the most unsafe of all the playground equipment. Yeah, because all the merry-go-rounds and seesaws have already been uprooted. Lenore Skenazy says, Thus does American childhood remain, for the most part, a mulch-chip, no-slip, primary-colored plastic safe space. Or, as a German insurance exec might put it, a risk-ignorance breeding ground. Now, I get it. That's, that's pushing some buttons there. But I think it's actually pretty solid in terms of the, the reality is kids need to be able to, to experience risk and assess risk. And helicopter parenting is just not the way that you're going to get good, self-actuated, actuated, rather confident kids who can go out there and stand on their own two feet. I don't want to sound conspiratorial on this, but I, I sometimes worry that, uh, particularly within the public school setting, we, we've seen great effort to, to try to get kids 
out of that mindset. To put them in a mindset where, you know, it's, you have to do what, you, what we say and, you know, avoiding risk is always the primary, you know, directive here. We can't have any kind of risk whatsoever. Sounds like a good way to stunt your growth. And it, it leads me to, to another question here. And this one, this one is going to actually go into some uncomfortable territory, but, uh, but I want to go there. The current push to vaccinate kids between 5 and 11 years old strikes me as, as baffling as well as unnecessary. Found a great article from Vasco Kohlmeyer titled, Why Do They Want to Vaccinate Children? I just want to share a couple of thoughts on this. Vasco Kohlmeyer says, FDA advisory panel okays Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11. That was a recent NBC News headline. How could a panel that is supposedly composed of rational, clear-headed scientists make such an inexplicable recommendation? Well, Kohlmeyer says, consider the following facts. According to a presentation by Fiona Havers, who works at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and who's a member of the agency's COVID-19 response team, during the 12-month period, October 2, 2020, through October 3, 2021, there were 66 COVID-19-associated deaths in children ages 5 through 11. No, you heard it correctly. In the last 12 months, there were only 66 COVID-related deaths in the 5 to 11-year-old demographic in the whole of the United States of America. To give you some perspective, children in that age bracket are 300% more likely to be murdered, 207 deaths, and 30% more likely to die of flu and pneumonia, 84 deaths, than they are to die of COVID. To give another point of comparison, according to the CDC in 2019, 608 children passengers ages 12 and younger died in motor vehicle crashes. So please contemplate this point well. Children under 12 years of age are nearly a 1,000% more likely to be killed in a vehicular mishap than to die of COVID-19. One more piece of reference data. According to Statista, there were 20 deaths and 100 injuries due to lightning strikes in the United States in 2019. So to put this back into the COVID question, your child is nearly 200% more likely to be struck by lightning than to be felled by COVID. But even that doesn't tell the whole story. Because not all all of those children who died with COVID died of COVID. Most of them had seriously un- serious underlying conditions, which contributed to their demise. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Now, this is good news for anybody who's actually uh, within the sound of my voice in the state of Utah, in that if you are looking for a mortgage, whether it's a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to help you get the loan that you need without delay. And as red hot as the real estate market has been, that's a big consideration. You've got to act quickly. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. 
You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Click the email link I provide in the show notes that will connect you directly to Heather. And you can also visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. So I'm sharing this article here from Vasco Kohlmeyer about uh, why do they want to vaccinate children? And look, you know, you may think I'm just totally anti-vax. No child should ever have vaccinations. Um, no, that that doesn't describe it uh, well at all. I I think that there's something about this vaccine that is just not justified, given the risk that children face. And when you consider that, yes, uh, 66 children died of COVID or died COVID related deaths in the last year. If they were between the ages of 5 and 11, only 66 in the entire United States. But you got to remember that most of those who died had some very serious underlying conditions. So they died with COVID instead of, of COVID because of things like obesity or chronic metabolic disease or feeding tube dependence or cardiovascular disease or neurologic disorders, chronic lung disease, blood disorders, immunosuppressed conditions and other conditions. So to state the situation in a different way, it's virtually unheard of for a healthy, active child to die of COVID-19. For all practical purposes, the chance of your healthy child dying from this disease is zero. Even the scaremongering New York Times had to concede that to healthy children, the danger of severe COVID is so low as to be difficult to quantify. In other words, the risk is basically non-essential, so the obvious que- non-existent, rather. So the obvious question here is this: Why are we going to mass vaccinate healthy kids against COVID-19, given that they face virtually no serious risk from this particular disease? Now, the only valid medical reason for a vaccination of this age cohort would be to stop the spread of infection, but that can't be the case because it's now widely known that the COVID vaccines do not prevent infection. This was publicly affirmed some three months ago by none other than CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Speaking of the vaccines in her CNN interview on August 5th with Wolf Blitzer, Walensky said what they can't do anymore is to prevent transmission. Now, the combination of extremely low COVID risk to the young and the vaccine's inability to prevent transmission is what makes vaccinating children a non-sequitur from the point of view of public health. Not only is there no real benefit in doing so, but there are also considerable risks associated with this procedure. It's well known that the COVID vaccines have not been properly subjected to trials and tested. It normally takes between 6 and 10 years to develop and test a vaccine that can be declared safe and effective for mass implementation. The COVID shots have been around for less than 18 months which makes it impossible to know what their long-term side effects may be. Meanwhile, in the short term, we have every reason to be concerned about these inadequately tested pharmaceuticals. According to an analysis of the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System database, or VAERS, between December 2020 and October 15th of this year, there have been records of more than 17,000 deaths and 800,000 adverse reactions in connection with the vaccines. And by the way, there's, there is a link to the study that shows this. So just so you know, Vasco Kohlmeyer isn't pulling this out of uh, thin air. This, however, doesn't give a true picture, he says, though, as it represents just a small fraction of the actual cases. 
According to a Harvard study, only about 1% of vaccine injuries get logged in the VAERS database. So do the math. This being said, it doesn't mean that there's a causal connection in every reported case between the vaccine and the bad health event. Nevertheless, in a substantial portion of reported cases, such a connection does exist. So keeping in mind the findings of the Harvard study should give you an idea of how deep our safety concerns should be. And yet, despite all this, members of the FDA advisory panel still thought that injecting children who have virtually zero risk of serious COVID with these inadequately tested substances is a good idea. Vasco Kohlmeyer says to say that this is reckless and irresponsible would be an understatement. Why would they do such a thing? Well, his answer is money is the main reason. The effort to inject your children is primarily driven by a desire to further increase the already immense profits of the pharmaceutical giants that produce these vaccines. The dictum, follow the money, applies well here. A recent U.S. news headline should give you a good idea of what's involved. The headline reads, Pfizer expects 2021-2022 COVID-19 vaccine sales to total at least $65 billion. Pfizer's COVID vaccine stands to become the most profitable pharmaceutical product in history. And you can easily see through their game when you look at who sits at the advisory panel that issued the recommendation. According to a report issued by Zero Hedge, the meeting roster shows that numerous members of the committee and temporary voting members have worked for Pfizer or have major connections to Pfizer. Members include a former vice president of Pfizer vaccines, a recent Pfizer consultant, a recent Pfizer research grant recipient, a man who mentored a current Pfizer vaccine executive, a man who runs a center that gives out Pfizer vaccines, the chair of a Pfizer data group, a guy who was proudly photographed taking a Pfizer vaccine and numerous people who are already on the record supporting coronavirus vaccines for children. Meanwhile, Recent FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is on Pfizer's board of directors. And really is kind of a remarkable coincidence, right? And if this weren't bad enough, the acting chair of the board that made the recommendation was one Albert S. Monto, who was a paid Pfizer consultant up until 2018. Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of mRNA vaccines and a true and honest scientist, called this a staggering conflict of interest. Vasco Kohlmeyer says it also shows how brazen these people are, since they did this in open view. He says this is part of a larger pattern whereby nearly all regulatory agencies of the U.S. government have fallen into the hands of those they are supposed to oversee. The name for this process is regulatory capture. As a result, we can no longer have trust in government bodies tasked with protecting the safety and well-being of the population. to endanger the health of children in the absence of a medical justification and for the sake of profit is a travesty of unspeakable proportions. And by the way, I don't know if you'll find this interesting, but Vasco Kohlmeyer was born and grew up in former communist Czechoslovakia. So if you want to talk about somebody who's actually seen firsthand what, uh, what real honest-to-goodness tyranny and authoritarian control is like, yeah, this, this guy has, has been there. He's seen it and experienced it firsthand. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I would encourage you while you're there, please look at the sponsor links. If you have the chance, click on the one 
titled GovernYourMoney.com. A lot of people who are facing the possible loss of job over vaccine mandates are really scrambling right now trying to find, what can I do? How can I be totally independent in my income? Well, I think if you click on this link, you may find some possible answers. It's, it's day trading on the foreign currency exchange markets or the Forex markets. And GovernYourIncome.com is a company that will train you how to do those trades and then actually give you company money to go out there and make money. It's not for everybody, but if it's for you, I think it'd be worth your time. If you're dead serious about having a solid income that uh, could be yours, you could work from anywhere that has an internet connection, this might be worth looking at. You'll find the link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I know I'm beating the drum again here for these vaccine mandates, but really I see this as one of the defining issues of our time. And I'm sad to see that so many people are in a position where they are really seriously having to choose between do I follow my conscience or do I go ahead and and sell that last little bit of my conscience, you know, for the sake of keeping a job or keeping peace, you know, as, as the case may be. It's a really unenviable position, and it's not one they put themselves in. The folks who are issuing these mandates are the ones uh, who are to blame. But this much can't be denied. The VAX mandate on businesses is intensifying our national crisis. And actually, we have several overlapping crises. So where exactly it's going to lead, nobody is sure. I like Jeffrey Tucker's take on this. The mandate on business intensifies the crisis. This is from the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. Tucker says it's hard to imagine that public confidence in everything could fall further, but it surely will. In fact, he says this last week was emblematic. We saw Biden's party face an electoral route last Tuesday due to mostly pandemic policy. Even the education controversies in Virginia traced to disastrous school closures, followed two days later by an intensification of those very policies with a vaccine mandate on companies with 100 or more employees. That was followed by an announcement from Pfizer the very next day that they have a new therapeutic pill that is 89% effective, in which case, why the vaccine mandate? Tucker says that's more than enough to make one's head spin, but then it got worse. The same day, the head of the CDC claimed on Twitter that masks reduce your chance of COVID infection by 80%, a claim without a shred of evidence in the scientific literature. He says at this point, it seems they will say anything knowing full well that the fact-checkers will leave alone any high official in the federal government. So he says, let's focus on the mandate on business. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has thankfully issued a stay on the entire order pending a closer review, citing grave constitutional problems with the OSHA order. The Biden administration is being asked to respond by, uh, I guess by today, as of this writing. And he says the edict itself relies most fundamentally on the claim that immunity acquired through infection appears to be less protective than vaccination, which Jeff Tucker says is unproven and likely false. And it's imposed in the midst of evidence all around us that the previous public sector and contractor mandate has led to sick outs, resignations and unpaid leave announcements hitting industrial sectors and cities all over the country. 
from airlines to fire departments to hospitals and academia. Yeah, they're seeing it. In Senate testimony, Anthony Fauci cited the fantastic success of mandates at United Airlines while failing to mention the hundreds of firings and the pilot and staff revolt at every other airline. Now, one would suppose that this mess would be enough to forestall more mandates, but no. Now all companies with 100 employees must force vaccines on its employees or else pay fines of $13,600 per violation. More precisely, the mandate is a masking and testing one with an exemption permitted for the vaccinated. And that little trick is designed to survive the flurries of inevitable court challenges. Yes, it overtly creates a segregated caste system based on one's willingness to submit to an injection via a government mandate. And these rules come into effect on January 4th of 2022, which means that businesses all over the country will spend the next two months trying to figure out what to do. Same with workers, many millions of whom do not believe that they need and thus do not want this vaccine that neither stops infection nor transmission and is also associated with unusually high adverse effects for which the vaccine makers bear no reliability. Now, Jeffrey Tucker also points out, buried in the gigantic text is a request for public comment on expanding this to all businesses of any size. So there is no real escape in the long run. He says it's truly hard to imagine how this could happen in the U.S. But the same could be said about nearly everything that's happened in the last 21 months. Citizens are desperately struggling to get out from under the yoke of this despotism, and they're using every opportunity to do so. Politicians who back these policies are being swept out of office, and yet they carry on. It appears that the sadistic state is quickly becoming a masochistic one. Eleven red state governors have already filed lawsuits around the country, but these take time. And judges are incredibly unreliable. Some will reject the mandate, some will embrace it. Then there are appeals, and those too take time. There will be the matter of toggling between various decisions. It sets up a war between the states, a war between judges, a war between bureaucracies at all levels. And for what? The public health rationale makes zero sense. Charles Blow, a very naive New York Times columnist who accidentally says things he should not, tweeted out an obvious question. Quote, I am mystified by how these southern states have such low rates of COVID where many of their governors haven't followed CDC guidance. Someone explain this, please. Please explain this to me. Well, he received an earful in the replies, but of course, he cannot change his mind. He works for the New York Times, and we all know where they stand. In fact, it's worse than what he says. The states where vaccination is the highest, Vermont, for example, are some of the places where infections are worse. Now, of course, the inevitable answer here is we'll get a booster and give more injections to people who are younger and younger, even if they are at near zero risk of severe outcomes. And even if we know for certain, 106 serious studies by now, that natural immunity, perhaps half or more Americans already have it, is 27 times as robust as vaccine immunity. The science is absolutely clear on this. And yes, he has a link to the 106 serious studies. But of course, this is really not about science, says Jeffrey Tucker. It's about political hegemony. Once the Biden administration decided this past summer that state by state they could predict vaccination rates by party affiliation, the deed was done. So they decided to use the shot to target their political enemies, vex them and show them who's boss. In particular... 
Washington, D.C. today despises Florida and Texas, which has siphoned off millions of residents from the lockdown states. The resentment of this and the realignment this will create in the future is palpable. But businesses can't wait for the courts to sort out this mess. Tucker says they have to act now. So HR departments are already putting together plans for imposing the mandates. This much is true, he says. Everyone who wanted a shot long ago got one. This leaves only people of various degrees of resistance, resentment, and anger. Many people will go along, but others will not, and so they will be fired. They will seek other employment in a company with fewer than 100 workers to provide a temporary reprieve. And then he points out that all of this is occurring in times of an unprecedented labor shortage, when perhaps 4.3 million people have gone missing. Businesses cannot find workers. Owners of businesses are having to work 18 hours a day, even as they face rising costs of nearly everything in this inflationary environment. Now they're being told that they must become the enforcers of vaccine, which will only intensify their resentment. And of course, none of this is truly enforceable. The Department of Labor has nowhere near the resources, especially since they too are firing people for their failure to comply with this mandate. Compliance devolves down the company level, pitting managers against employees and employees against each other. Tucker says, I'm going out on a limb here to say in public what many people tell me in private is true. There is a pandemic of forgeries in every sector that has attempted a mandate. Some people with vaccinations don't see the big deal here. Just get the jab, then you can be free. Others find this idea to be outrageous. An immoral acquiescence to power that can only lead to even worse outcomes. Businesses, meanwhile, just want to get on with doing business. But doing so will require they become enforcement agents for the CDC and vaccine companies. And he points out how this all flies in the face of an institution that has long been part of our public ethos. The medicine we take, our health information, the choices which we make over what to do with our bodies are no one's business. In a free and civilized society, individuals can keep all of this private. Vaccinated or not, only the individual should decide and the choice he or she makes should not be public knowledge. Famed quarterback Aaron Rodgers explained as much when he pushed back against the mob that denounced him for declining to get vaccinated. He had, he had previously said he was immunized, an excellent word choice to describe the reality of natural immunity. After further refusing the shot, the mob became angrier, demanding he immediately be fired. Well, the Aaron Rodgers controversy is a microcosm of a larger public health mess that's encouraged stigmatization, segregation, spying, and generalized brutality that's dividing companies, communities, and friends, spreading mistrust and anger without precedent in our lifetimes. And Jeffrey Tucker says a more incompetent conduct of public health is hard to imagine. Now, I don't know if that gave you any new insights. I just, I, I really like Jeffrey Tucker's ability to distill down into the essence of here's what is at stake. And I see nothing that he's written here that is, is out of character or, you know, amounts to hyperbole. The links are there in the story. You can follow them yourself if you want to see, does this really hold up? You can find this linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and hopefully come away a little stronger, a little more fortified against those who would tell you, you have to do it. It's for the public good, because now you know better. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to throw a quick uh, word in here for lifesavingfood.com. Look, I don't care if, if you if you buy your food storage from lifesavingfood.com. That's great. They're a great sponsor. They're offering a terrific discount, 25% discount to my listeners when they use the coupon code HIDE. But I'm begging you, if you haven't considered putting away some stores for a rainy day, this is the time to do it. And you don't have to go out there and buy, you know, a whole truckload of food and food storage at once. But you've got to be consistently putting things away. Prices are continuing to go up. Uh, the supply chain crisis continues to intensify. We've never really known a time of need. Most of us have had very, very comfortable lives. But I can't shake this feeling that we are on the cusp of something that uh, we, we could see a big shift. And, and for the first time in our lives, many of us could know what it's like to have to do without. Don't let food be part of that uh, have-to-do-without equation. Go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. In the show notes, you'll find links to all of my sponsors. Click on lifesavingfood.com. And again, with the coupon code HIDE, get 25% off at checkout. That's an incredibly generous discount, and it's an incredibly timely thing to be thinking about. Well, let's uh, let's dive in. Got two more quick topics I want to cover in this final segment. Um, one is just kind of how to protect yourself against uh, wokeism, the fatal flaw of wokeism. This is a guy writing under the pseudonym Steve Rose, so not his real name, but he he points out that wokeism is fatally flawed at the core, in that it pretends to be a road to universal harmony, but it will never deliver. Wokeism might seem intimidating at first, but like the Death Star, critical weaknesses make it vulnerable. He says the most obvious flaw is that certain individuals claim to be oppressed while at the same time they're enjoying support from government, the media, academia, the entire entertainment industry, big business, and big tech. Now, you can either be a marginalized victim or enjoy the support of the most powerful institutions in existence, but not both. Wokeness also contradicts itself. Take the phrase, all white people are racist. Translation, people with this skin color are bad because they divide people up based on skin color. Ah, that's a great way to put it. Wokeism takes superficial human traits such as skin color, which reveal truly nothing nothing truly important about an individual, and makes them the central organizing principle of society. They're trying to reorganize our entire society around superficial traits. And what about its effects? Does wokeism deliver on its promises? Exactly the opposite. Aside from making everyone miserable and poisoning the culture, wokeism makes race relations worse. But these obvious flaws only point toward deeper ones. Why does wokeism encourage victimhood for those with power, pretend to aim for harmony while stoking division, and elevate superficiality? Well, looking at how wokeism works helps explain. Steve Rose says, Wokeism lives and breathes through criticism and accusation. The strategy of let's all criticize each other's flaws until we love each other creates mutual implosion. It weaponizes human imperfection, but even more, wokeism is impossible. It's why even Hollywood, with its wealthy fanatics, fails at wokeness. It's not that there's a lot of work to do. The core ideas of the entire operation are flawed top to bottom. No matter how much work we do, it will never be enough. 
Wokeism assumes that criticizing people who do things wrong will make things right. It offers cheap, fast-food-style instant moral superiority for dummies. But these efforts to solve certain problems only create new, worse problems. Criticism assumes something to criticize. It parallels socialism's focus on wealth redistribution, assuming that wealth will always be there to to, uh, distribute. Both relationships are parasitic, and every hungry parasite requires a host. This is why they can't find enough actual race when they can't find enough actual racism, wokists invent race hoaxes. It's why wokalites have to retreat to subconscious racism and microaggressions and silences violence. Because conscious racism, actual aggressions and actual violence are rare. There isn't enough food for the parasite. The old host was already mostly sucked dry. But the woke rabbit hole goes even deeper. Imagine pointing any of this out to a diehard woke fundamentalist. What would he probably say? I disagree because reason, 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 reason. Well, those reasons would likely sound absurd to everyone, including the wokey. But that doesn't matter. Wokeism rejects reason itself whenever it's convenient. It's selectively Freudian by claiming that reason is the plaything of the passions and reason is always mere rationalization. Under threat, the woke go sub-rational. In other words... Wokeism is a fundamentalist religious cult immune to argument, logic, and evidence. Force this fact on them and the woke cultists retreat to their self-declared pure hearts. Aren't our intentions good? Don't we mean well? Isn't our noble imaginary utopia worth sacrificing free speech, freedom of the press, religion, and all the rest? Aren't our noble goals worth breaking a few eggs? Don't those ends justify the means? Well, if that was accurate... Wokies would celebrate every success of women over the patriarchy, black individuals over white, LGBTQ individuals over straight, and so on. So, wokeism celebrates the triumph of Candace Owens, Clarence Thomas, Larry Elder, and Thomas Powell over white supremacy. It celebrates the triumph of Sarah Palin, Winsome Sears, and Amy Coney Barrett over the patriarchy. It celebrates the triumph of Richard Grinnell, Dave Rubin, and Douglas Murray over homophobia, right? Of course not. These individuals embody the victory of its alleged ideals, yet wokeism attacks them viciously and relentlessly. But why? And could the why reveal the what and how? See, the thing is, it's not really about skin color, gender, sex. Those are the vehicles by which people prove they will comply with and conform to the real agenda. And therein lies wokeism's most fatal flaw. It's a fraud. It's a phony, a sham, a fake, an old, to, to go old school, it's a hypocrite. The noble aims of wokeism are fig leaves. Wokeism pretends to solve problems of race, gender, and so on, but underneath it's really just plain old communism. It's all about power. The lofty ideals are Trojan horses with communists inside. Under that sheep's clothing hides a wolf. That wolf is the same old poisonous Marxism dressed in new clothes. It's another variant strain of what murdered over a hundred million people, oppressed countless others, and continues spreading misery across the globe. It's the same old cultural toxin, but now covered in sugar. Wokeism is a political Harvey Weinstein, using noble-sounding phrases to causes rather to cover diabolical deeds. The woke clergy admit, admit this. Kendi says capitalism is essentially racist and that racism is essentially capitalist. 
the founder of the BLM, we're trained Marxist, D'Angelo. Capitalism is so bound up with racism. He's right, by the way. It's just class warfare under under a different uh, set of wrapping paper. Now, George Carlin spotted the fraud decades ago when he said political correctness is fascism pretending to be manners. He saw more clearly than many today. Wokeism is intellectual herpes disguised as tolerance. It's a mind virus deliberately engineered to enslave humanity by hijacking the ideals of good people and turning those ideals against them. But here's the real thing to remember. It was invented by people who want more power over the rest of us. Someone comes to you with weaponized guilt and telling you, you need to give me more power over you. They're not looking out for your best interest. They're not looking to solve a real problem. They fooled many into just cruising around, gleefully correcting everyone according to rules they just made up, declaring this racist, that sexist, this offensive, etc. But Steve Rose says, uh, these nags aren't the morally superior crusaders they pretend to be. They're suckers. They're moral fast food junkies. They've been tricked by deceptive tactics into joining a political religious cult that persecutes outsiders. And he says, like anyone who constantly corrects everyone's grammar, grammar rather, they should be met with eye rolls, sighs, head shakes, and statements like, look, I'm not in your cult. Don't impose your morality on me. He says, being a member of an invasive, preachy, finger-wagging, fundamentalist political cult just isn't cool anymore. So now we know. The gig is up. It's time to strip away the disguises, drop the masks, and pull away every fig leaf at every possible opportunity. It's time to expose wokeism for what it actually is and be done with it. And learn from it so it never returns again. That's pretty straightforward stuff. Now I'm beginning to understand why he may be writing this under a pseudonym because uh, it's it really tells a tale. By the way, there's an article in the show notes, too, that I would really encourage you to take the time to read. It's from Thomas L. Knapp about how the metaverse, that's the big combined might of Facebook, Instagram, etc., is actually contributing by opening a door to panarchy and unanimous consent. Now, panarchy sounds scary, doesn't it? I think it's actually the best thing that we could, could have. What if you were able to choose the type of government under which you wish to live rather than having it forced upon you by a majority? That's what panarchy is. It's about having choices. You'll find the article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.